Hey and welcome to the Satanist Reads the Bible. Exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions and their sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. The book of Job, which relates the story of a devout and wealthy man from the land of Uz, whose devotion to God is tested by profound suffering, is easily the most fascinating and enigmatic book of the Old Testament. As usual, I approached this text with some preliminary research, and then, once some of the complexities of the text had come to light, I asked my partner what they knew of it. They related to me exactly the narrative I expected, the very one that I had been told throughout my life. God points out to Satan the devotion of Job, and Satan retorts that Job is only devoted because of his great wealth and healthy body. God then takes away Job's wealth and causes him great bodily suffering to prove that Job will remain devoted. Job loses his land, his wealth, his family, and his health, but remains devoted to God, and in the end, God rewards him for his faith. While this is not entirely inaccurate, it covers only the first, second, and last chapters of a book that is 42 chapters long. What is conveyed in the other 39 chapters? In looking into it, I found that, once again, what is said of the text and what the text actually says are two very different things. I'm going to be talking more about that in just a second. If you like what you hear on the show today, if you find it interesting and informative, then please like, subscribe, tell your friends, check out the essays on asatanistreadsthebible.com, and while you're there, click through the book links in the essays and maybe make some purchases, and take a look at my Patreon page and consider signing up as a patron. There are some really great benefits, and all this stuff really helps me out as far as giving me resources to help me make this thing the best it can be. As usual, I'm going to talk music and books before we dive into the deep end, and the music for today comes to us courtesy of Inter Arma. Inter Arma is a band I've been following for a while, I think since they released Sky Burial in 2013. They've been releasing quality material since then, if not longer, and they've always been at the top of their game as far as combining atmospheric sludge metal with elements of black and death metal. On this one, which came out in April on Relapse Records, they've really outdone themselves and crafted their best album yet. This is an extremely heavy, dense, and punishing album. Everything here is monstrous and roaring, and as incendiary as the title would indicate. Hit it up on Bandcamp and grab yourself a download, or seek it out on your streaming service of choice. The book of the week was given to me by the author, the poet Tim Early. It's his latest publication, Epigrams, both ludic and regicidal. I was working in an event in which he was a featured speaker, and he had read some of his poetry, and I asked him afterwards where I could purchase his work, and he just gave me the book. It's become one of my favorite possessions. I don't think I could do much justice to it in a description, so I'll just read one of my favorite selections. This is Domestic Paradell, Divested of Entropy. We are made of distance perfected, bartered libidinal urges. Little tremors in the heart when we make a purchase, circumscriptions styled to our needs. On cloudy days free of labor, it feels as though the unfurling of a memory might gain us entry into some deeper fold of the self or time. That is, if we weren't such strict curators, if such strict curation was not imposed by the pinches of nothingness that stand us upright, move us around these rooms. I'm reminded of the blue astral fire burning at the center of things, and that we will never reach it. When I look upon you with my many eyes, and you look upon me with your many eyes. And on to the essay of the week, the book of Job, part one. 
I'll be tackling this both this week and next week. There's a lot to cover in this one, so I ended up splitting it into two parts, but I've uncovered some really fascinating and unexpected things, so the journey will be well worth it. The Book of Job is believed to have been authored around the 6th century before the Common Era, plus or minus a few centuries. According to Kugler and Harton's An Introduction to the Bible from 2009, there are several reasons for this dating, one of which is the language used to denote Satan. The Hebrew here is ha-satan, literally the accuser, with Satan being the general word for any accuser or adversary, and this language reflects the early understanding of Satan as being not an evil entity existing in diametric opposition to God, but rather an agent of God, a kind of heavenly prosecutor known as the accuser. While the word Satan is used earlier in the Bible to denote actual adversaries, this is the first appearance in the Bible of Satan as being any sort of distinct entity. And remember that the serpent in the Garden of Eden is never identified as Satan. I'll be quoting the source here using the accuser rather than Satan, which the notes to my copy of the Bible state as a perfectly viable gloss. To reflect this understanding and to curtail conflation with the modern understanding of Satan. The book of Job begins with a description of its titular character blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Chapter 1, verse 1. Living in great wealth in the land of Uz. This notion that God is one who is to be feared is a point central to the text, and I'll return to that later. As a specific example of Job's uprightness, the text states that his children often hold feasts and revel, and Job offers burnt offerings to God by way of atoning for whatever sins his children may have committed in their revelry. Having established Job's character and situation, the narrative moves to heaven where, quoting here, The heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser also came among them. The Lord said to the accuser, Where have you come from? The accuser answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to the accuser, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then the accuser answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to the accuser, Very well. All that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So the accuser went out from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 1, verses 6-12. through 12. And as always, quoting from the New Revised Standard Version. Satan the accuser has returned from taking stock of the whole world, and God asks him to consider what it is that God considers best in the world. One who is simply fearful and obedient. Note that the text does not say that Job does good, only that he turns away from evil and offers the proper sacrifices in atonement for the sins of his family. Responding to this, the accuser asks whether Job can be truly fearful if he has only ever experienced God's blessing and never his wrath. This is a somewhat different matter than expecting that Job will simply remain faithful in the face of adversity. The accuser doesn't seem concerned with whether Job remains devoted to God so much as whether he truly fears God. The accuser expects that, faced with such an adversity, Job will curse God to their face, which would of course indicate a manifest lack of fear on Job's part. 
But here we come to a very strange matter with regards to the translation from the original Hebrew. The verb that is translated as to curse is barak, which means to bless. Barak is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as bless, and even elsewhere in Job is rendered as bless. But in this instance, and later when Job's wife admonishes him to bless God, as per the Hebrew, it is rendered as curse. Explanations I have found on the internet write this off as being euphemistic and clear from context, but I think that that is an unwarranted assumption, especially given, one, its consistent usage as bless elsewhere in the Old Testament, and two, my thesis that the meaning of this entire book has been misunderstood and misrepresented. I have another translation of the book of Job by Stephen Mitchell from 1987, which states, In several places, it is obvious that some scribe has deliberately altered a word out of a pious desire to suppress Job's blasphemy. Should Mitchell be referring here to the bless-curse problem, and I very much think that that's the case, what he's saying does not make any sense. Even though God is cursed elsewhere in the Old Testament, for example, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 11, multiple scribes, for there must have been multiple extant lineages of the book, changed a word to mean its exact opposite, out of piety? But I am not an expert in biblical Hebrew, and there may indeed be subtle indications that this usage is euphemistic, though I've been unable to find any specific support for that, but failing confirmation either way, I'll proceed from here with both translations in mind. In this particular case, what might the accuser mean in saying that Job will, having been afflicted, bless God to their face? Given the emphasis on the fear of God, it might mean to say that once Job has seen the true might of God, he will acknowledge this directly and it will no longer be an assumption absent the context of actual adversity in which fear of God would be more meaningful and real. This would prove the accuser's point that Job did not truly fear God before. What's more, the word barak is based on the Hebrew root bet resh kaf upon which are also built words for the knee and for kneeling. The biblical Hebrew verbs for to bless and to kneel are spelled the same, their pronunciation differing only in the vowels, which, in the original Hebrew text, were left unwritten. Given that the vowel markings in the Bible were not added until at least 600 of the Common Era, over a thousand years after the likely authorship of the Book of Job, I wonder if the original meaning might have been intended as kneel to God rather than either bless God or curse God. In any case, Hebrew words that share the same root are semantically related, so should this be a possibility, much of what follows from a translation as to bless also follows from a translation as to kneel to. Then God, rather than intervening in Job's life directly, delegates that power to the accuser, stipulating only that he not affect the physical person of Job. This fits with the notion of Satan the Accuser as an agent of God, who is here working not only to test God's assumption about his followers, but to ultimately get God the recognition that they deserve. The next day, Job's servants come to him almost tripping over one another to deliver worse and worse news. All his livestock have been killed or taken away, and all his servants, save for those bringing him the news, and his children are dead. Job's response is properly meek. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 21. 
Putting aside the fact that Job expects to return to his mother's womb, this is a rather nihilistic reaction to such a colossal tragedy. If I myself were visited by so much loss at one time, I would have to wonder whether I had gotten on someone or something's bad side. A religious person such as Job would surely expect that such a coincidence of tragedy was the intentional work of God. But he accepts this with passive resignation. Job does not seem at all fearful here, only resigned to the will of God. Seemingly sometime later, the heavenly gathering recurs with the accuser again present, and this gathering proceeds in much the same manner as the first. The accuser says that he has returned from taking stock of the world. God asks whether he is considered Job, who remains a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, God continues, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Chapter 2, verse 3. And note that God's speech here almost seems to indicate that they feel that they were bullied into this by the accuser and would not have taken such actions of their own accord. The accuser's response is that Job remains faithful not because he fears God, but because he still has his health and the comfort of a healthy body. Make his life physically unbearable, the accuser says, and Job will curse, or bless, or kneel to, God to their face. So God removes the earlier stipulation and allows the accuser to affect Job as he will, requiring only that he not take Job's life. The accuser afflicts Job with horrible boils, and now Job's wife admonishes him for persisting in his devotion to God. She says, curse God and die, chapter 2, verse 9. But again, the word here is barak, so we might translate this bless God and die, or kneel to God and die. And in this case, the translation is bless seems the more meaningful one. Why would God allow Job a release from his suffering if he were to curse them? Job's wife seems to be saying, acknowledge God's power so that he might let you die. But Job rebukes her saying, shall we not receive the good at the hands of God and not receive the bad? Again, the translation here does not seem to be representing the full picture. Ra is not only bad, but also evil. That's the Hebrew word, ra. This curious notion that the God of the Old Testament might act towards both good and evil is something I'll be returning to later on. Rather than acknowledging God is acting directly to torment Job, Job seems to be saying that God is working for the overall good and that some evil must necessarily come along with that. But this is not the acknowledgement of power that God and the accuser are seeking. Had it been, God surely would have relented at this point and restored Job to his former wealth. What is to gain from continuing to torment Job when he has already demonstrated that his resolve will not break. I've uncovered so much in the book of Job that I've had to split this essay into two parts, and I'll leave off here at the end of the second chapter of the book. Already we've uncovered some things that point towards this being a very different book than the one that is often described to us. In part two, I'll cover the parts of the book that are usually not spoken of, and we'll uncover a great deal more along these lines. There are many things about the book of Job that are truly remarkable and fascinating, but that I didn't have time to get to in the essay itself. I'll discuss more in the discussion segment for part two next week, and more still in short patron-only essays on my Patreon page. But even in just what I've read so far, it's apparent that the book of Job has a message that is radically different than the one for which it is often used as support. That message is that your suffering may be a test from God. Everyone I know has something going wrong in their life right now. This message says that 
that's just God testing you. And if things go really wrong all at once, as they did for Job, that's just God testing you. And if you keep the faith, you'll be rewarded in the end. Hui bono. Who benefits? Who is it that might stand to benefit from this being the accepted message of the book of Job, substituted for its actual meaning and content? I don't want to paint a picture of some grand conspiracy to conceal the truth about Job. I don't think that's how hegemony works. But it's a good question to ask, nevertheless. I think that most people, when they find themselves in an unpleasant situation, are going to want to do something about it. They're going to want to figure out a way to escape from the suffering they're experiencing. This could potentially be a problem for the people in charge, whether they be governmental, corporate, or religious in nature. If enough people are sufficiently unhappy, they might want to change who's in charge, and people who are in power generally want to stay in power. Well, what if you're in some position of power and the people below you are getting increasingly unhappy, but they also have this book in which they vest their total faith? What if you could convince them that this book says that if they just keep their heads down and stay the course, everything will turn out fine? That seems like it would work very much to your advantage. Again, I don't think that there was some grand conspiracy at some point in history where a cabal of capitalists and religious leaders got together and decided uh, and decided on how they would promulgate a false narrative of the book of Job. But I think it's very likely that the book has been used that way at times, whether deliberately or not. If Marx was at all right about religion being the opium of the people, this would be a very pointed example. Up next, well, part two, obviously. There's just a tiny possibility that I'll keep adding to this and then it'll spill over into part three, but I think I'm going to aim to keep it to just two parts, even if I have to skip segments next week to add time. And the next catch-up episode, which will be going up at the same time, will be my early essay, Satan the Accuser and the Temptation of Christ in the Wilderness, which I think is one of the best ones from the first few months before I settled into my groove. And finally, a Satanist poetry corner. The sounds of night land at my feet, noise of commerce, and it's like I've stepped in something I wouldn't ever want to have stepped in. Froth and gunk of the earth movers, maybe they're paving that new highway drilling and paving across the earth. And all night the sound of the trains, their horns blowing even at this hour, make way for commerce. All that we can drill up is on wheels and rolling through. It's a sound that I remember, one that I remember as the thundering undercurrent to the burning of the world. That's it for the show today. Thanks so much for listening. Abbas and Abbas.